Welcome to Renewal Church. If we haven't yet met, my name is Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal. And whether you've been joining us for a long time or this is your first Sunday, we are uh, excited to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, for our sermon, we are going to be finishing up our sermon series, our summer sermon series, uh, entitled The Prayers of the Saints. Our goal here has been to focus our hearts and our affections on prayer by looking at the many ways different saints from both the Old Testament and the New Testament have prayed, by uh, examining this great cloud of witnesses uh, and their prayers, we can be reminded of, one, the power of prayer, and also be taught how to pray and be reminded to pray again in our daily lives. Uh, so way back at the beginning of July, the, the Renewal Elders had sent out an email uh, calling us as a church uh, into a season of focused and determined fasting and prayer, especially as we are heading into a new uh, season in our church life. Uh, this fall season is always a big season with students returning and lots of different things happening in our church. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we are covering the season in prayer asking God's, uh, God for guidance and blessing in this season. Um, so hopefully this sermon series has helped to focus our summer in a time of prayer. And this morning we come to the uh, very last prayer in the Bible. And it's also the shortest prayer in the Bible. It's so short you may not have caught it uh, in those verses in Revelation that Andrew just read for us. Uh, the prayer itself is offered uh, by John, the author and seer of the Revelation in verse 20 of what he just read, and John simply just says, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So that's the prayer that we're going to be looking at. Let's just take a moment uh, as we uh, think about this prayer to invite God's help as we come to this passage this morning in guiding and directing us and illuminating it for us this morning. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word this morning, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom and peace and wholeness. We ask you, Lord, to illuminate our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as your word is proclaimed, we may hear it with joy, that is what you are saying to us this morning, and put it into practice in our lives. Empower us to follow the example of Jesus this morning, and it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. I really like the word liminal. Liminal. It basically means transitional, uh, in between. It can also mean a time of ambiguity or disorientation between sort of a former time and a future time, liminal. For me, it kind of seems like where we're at in much of the world today is in fact a liminal time. Maybe it's the in-betweenness of what comes after COVID and all the other major world-changing events of the last couple years. And as much as I like the word liminal and thinking about what it means to be in liminal times and liminal spaces, I don't think really anybody enjoys actually living through liminal times. They're uncertain times. There's a certain unsettledness to it. 
Our individual lives and stories might also be filled with liminal times. Maybe you've recently graduated from college or grad school and you really don't know what's next in your life or calling. Or you're in a, a dating relationship and you're sort of past that initial infatuation stage and you're now beginning to wonder, is this the person that uh, God is calling me to spend the rest of my life with? But you're unsure. Or maybe you're in a transitionary time in your career and you're not sure what God's calling you to next in that sphere of your life. These are all liminal times that we can sometimes experience in our lives. So nations or cultures or individuals can all be in liminal times and experience liminal situations. But if you really stop and think about it, from a Christian and biblical perspective, the whole world has been in a liminal in-between time since the time when Jesus rose victorious over death and the grave and after a brief time on earth ascended to the Father in heaven. See, Jesus started his kingdom revolution by conquering sin and death and then said, you know what, it's going to be better for you if I return to my Father and I will send you the Holy Spirit as a helper, but don't worry, I'll be back one day. So from the earliest Christians until today, in this liminal time, we've been praying for Jesus to come again. For nearly 2,000 years, this prayer has been prayed by Christians. But what are we praying for when we pray for Jesus to come again? What are we saying when we say, come Lord Jesus, come? I won't be able to cover everything that this prayer and Jesus' return means this morning, but I want to think about three things that Jesus' return does mean that this passage from Revelation points us to. First, Jesus' return means that we've endured. Second, Jesus' return means judgment and justice. And finally, Jesus' return means healing. So we'll turn to my first point this morning. Jesus' return means that we have endured. So John's prayer, when he prays, come Lord Jesus, in the context, it's in the context of the book of Revelation. And John is writing this apocalyptic letter to the churches who are beginning to experience oppression and opposition, and they're beginning to worry about what may come in the future. Is there going to be some very, very difficult future persecution that's coming for the church? Theologian G.K. Beale helps us to situate the context for the, the letter of Revelation and John's purpose for writing it in his classic commentary. Beale writes this, John's motive in writing is the perceived discrepancy in the Christian audience between, on the one hand, belief that the kingdom has been inaugurated, that God was sovereign over history, and that Christ would soon return to conclude history, and on the other hand, the reality that the forces of evil continue to exist to dominate culture and even flourish while oppressing believers to varying degrees. How did the truths of the gospel relate practically and specifically to the difficult cultural, social, and political economic realities the early churches were beginning to be focused on? You can feel the tension that I mentioned earlier. You see, God is in control, 
and Jesus is returning and coming again, but in this liminal time, we're, we're waiting for his return. And sometimes during this waiting period, things are going to be really, really hard for the followers of Jesus. They're going to experience persecution. So John is writing this vision down in hopes that it will be an encouragement to Christians to endure through the oppression, to endure through the persecution, to persevere no matter what dangers, problems, and even death may come their way. There are multiple points in the book of Revelation where John makes clear his purpose to encourage Christians to endure. In 13.10, he writes, If anyone is taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for endurance and faith of the saints. And again, he says in, in, in chapter 14, verse 12, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's clear he's wanting God's people to endure by the time, if you're reading the book of Revelation, and you come to the end to chapter 22, which Andrew read for us, through all of the, the visions and trials and persecutions as you read the entire book, even the reader by the end is longing for Jesus to return. There's a refrain in chapter 22, uh, our passage this morning, coming from the mouth of Jesus, where Jesus keeps saying, I'm coming again soon. I'm coming again soon. Verse 7 is the first time Jesus speaks this refrain. He says, I'm coming soon. Blesses the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Keep the words of this book. In other words, keep on keeping on. Keep on enduring. Keep on believing. Keep on having faith in me. There's an aspect to what John is saying that, that God's word is true and trustworthy and you can build your life on God's word and the book of Revelation is a prophecy from God and so it's also true and can be trusted. But the earliest Christians and the Christians all around the world since that day until today who have faced very severe and real persecution, this command is a, a life and death proposition. The authority of God's word isn't so much an intellectual or philosophical debate for most of Christians around the world. It's a life or death, rubber meets the road kind of question. Do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you really believe that he died and rose victorious over death in the grave? Do you really believe that he's coming again soon to bring us home? And because you really believe these things that you will endure all kinds of harsh treatment, persecutions, and death. Like John says in verse 11, may the righteous still do righteous and the holy still be holy. Or as Hall of Fame country music singer Johnny Cash said in his apocalyptic song, the man who comes around, he says it like this, whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words written down long ago when the man comes around. It's a whole song about the return of Jesus. Whenever Paul would write to churches who, in his fear, were also experiencing persecution, he would have a similar theme. Like in 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, Paul writes this, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith 
in all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So, when we Christians today, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we should be praying it all the time. The first thing that it does is it reminds us today to endure until Jesus actually does return. We hold the faith. We remain righteous. We cling to Jesus. So when he does return, our fruit will show that we were really his all along. Jesus' Jesus's return means that we have endured till the end. And that brings me to my second point this morning, that Jesus' return means judgment and justice have come. When we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we should be praying it all the time, we long for a world that is to be made right again. We long for all the wrongs we see around us to be put to right. In verse 12 and 13 of chapter 22, Jesus here speaking says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus says he is the coming judge, bringing his recompense with him. And this may seem like an incredibly scary thing, but knowing that the true and perfect King Jesus the righteous one, that he's the one that's coming to judge, not some judge on the take, not some evil judge, but the true and righteous king and judge is coming. The one who, for those of us who know him and believe in him, it should be a joyful thing to know that the judge is coming because we know that we have the shield of the cross. And it also should be joyful because it means that truly evil and wicked, those among us who have done terrible and awful things will be judged accordingly. True justice will come at that time, even if we don't see justice here on earth today. You can imagine how encouraging that would have been to those early Christians who were facing down the sword of the Roman Empire, those who were experiencing persecution, those who were being put to death for their faith in Jesus, that one day their persecutors would face true justice and that they would be vindicated for their faith in Jesus. That's what the judgment brings. The Heidelberg Catechism is very similar to our Westminster Catechisms that we use often in our worship services here at Renewal. The Heidelberg Catechism Catechism question number 25 asks this, relating specifically to this question. What does Christ return to judge the living and the dead do to comfort you? And the answer is this. In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. The end of Revelation gives us a picture of what is to come 
when Jesus returns. He comes to judge the living and the dead, but he also comes to make all things new, to set to right what is wrong. Theologian Michael Bird says it this way, the powers that oppressed have become disempowered. The powers that be are the powers no more. Those who deny justice and inflicted injustices receive justice at the end. God's people rejoice, the nations all worship God, and the entire universe gives God glory. Also, because we know Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we should be praying it often, it is also a reminder that we Christians are called to be on God's mission of seeking and saving the lost. We are called to be evangelizers. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ should be on our hearts, in our actions, and on our lips, in all of the relationships with people who do not yet believe. It means we are about, to, we are about the business of sending out missionaries all over the world, and especially to places that there is little access to the gospel of Jesus. It means taking seriously our own neighborhoods in Philadelphia that are full of unbelieving people. It means taking seriously our workplaces and our families that are also full of unbelieving people and having the gospel on our lips when we are with these people. We are not culture warriors for a particular brand, whether that brand be political or denominational or otherwise. We instead are ambassadors for Christ. And God is making his appeal through us to people who do not believe in order to be reconciled to him. We are, have that great honor to be called into his mission. We aren't interested in power or Christian nationalism or anything like that. We are simple beggars at the foot of the cross who have found the bread of life, and we are offering that bread of life to other beggars in need. Other people who need the freedom and joy that we found. And we know, we know for a fact that King Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And so we want people to be made right with him. So, because Jesus is coming again, we, we know we can endure whatever hardships comes our way. We long for judgment and justice. And finally, we rejoice because we know Jesus' return means Healing. My third point, Jesus' return means healing. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. Just a chapter before chapter 22 in Revelation 21, we get a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the final consummation and that's what this prayer is a prayer for the final consummation to come and there in chapter 21 the water without price is also mentioned the idea is a is an echo from the old testament prophet isaiah and it also comes to us from the words of jesus in the gospel of john you see jesus freely offers healing and eternal life through the living water of his life death and resurrection for those who are thirsty enough for those who are thirsty to know him. The vision that Jesus gives of this new heavens and new earth and people finding this new life in the spring of the water of life is a beautiful vision at the end of our Bible. Jesus says from the throne, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we should be praying it all the time, we're praying for the healing waters of eternal life to come. We are praying for Jesus to make all things new. We are praying for him to come and finally and fully put death to death. We're praying for him to wipe away every tear. We are praying for him to remove all of our pain and suffering. Like many people, I I suffer from chronic lower back pain. There are few things that can give me relief from this pain, like uh, stretching uh, or uh, some like ice packs, uh, physical movements, uh, and some, you know, taking four Advil, those kind of things are the things that can give me some relief to my lower back pain. And I'm always amazed at the shift in my attitude and perspective when I go from pain to no pain. I'm so looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus returning for many reasons. But one simple reason is no more back pain. I know many of you here this morning and people uh, throughout the world have gone through a lot more pain and are going through a lot more pain physically and emotionally than I have. But for those of you who are in pain this morning, can you imagine a life eternal with no pain? And not just no pain, but no death. That's what Jesus is holding out for us. It's the final chapter of the long story of Scripture. Throughout the whole story of the Bible, God has been saying all along, I love you, I am with you, I am for you, don't be afraid, you can come home because I've prepared a place for you. Jesus' return means we've endured. Jesus' return means there's judgment and true justice. And Jesus' return means that the final and full healing has come. When we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we should be praying it all the time. There are some very practical applications for this prayer beyond what I've already mentioned this morning. As I said earlier, it's the final prayer in Scripture, but it's also the shortest prayer. I think sometimes we think that God requires of us, those who love him and follow of him, long prayers all the time. But if you really stop and think about the prayers that we've been looking at in Scripture over the summer, they've all been pretty short. This one is only three words. Come, Lord Jesus. Christians have prayed this prayer for centuries, sometimes adding a fourth word, come, Lord Jesus, come. Even Jesus, when he uh, stopped and wanted to teach his disciples how to pray in the book of Matthew, in chapter 6, it's the famous Lord's Prayer that Pastor Dan recently preached on. In leading up to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives two pieces of advice about how to pray. He says, one, don't pray like the hypocrites who like to get up in front of people and be noticed when they pray. So don't be like them. Also, he says, don't pray like the Gentiles who like to pray with many words. And then Jesus goes on to pray the model prayer for the Christian life. 
And do you know how long the Lord's Prayer is? Depending on your translation, it's all of about 80 words. It takes about 20 seconds or so to pray. Short prayers are good prayers. There's a real spiritual benefit to praying short prayers. Short, memorized prayers like, Come, Lord Jesus, and the Lord's Prayer can be said quietly and repeatedly throughout your day in a moment's notice. When you are feeling yourself get anxious, come, Lord Jesus. When you're feeling that chronic pain, come, Lord Jesus. When you're on your way to talk to a friend who's struggling with their marriage, come, Lord Jesus. When you're frustrated with your children, come, Lord Jesus. When you feel like your faith is barely hanging on, come, Lord Jesus. A second and also very practical thing to think about when we pray for Jesus to come again is the connection with the Lord's Supper. We at Renewal receive communion together about once a month, and we'll be partaking this morning in just a few moments. But every time we come to the Lord's Supper, and we should do it often, we are essentially praying, come Lord Jesus, come. It's an eschatological sacrament. We look back at Jesus' death on the cross for us, his body broken and blood shed for us, but we also look forward to his coming again, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our little wafer, our, our little piece of bread, and our little plastic cup are spiritual foretastes of what is to come. A big wedding feast that will never end. It seems like the best moments in life are full of friends and family gathered around a big table with lots of beautiful food to share. Those are the very best moments in life. Why is this? The wedding feast, the friends and family gathered around the table, strikes at our deepest human longings. Longings for connection, longings for meaning and justice and wholeness and goodness and truth and beauty and a home. God has placed all of these longings in all of us. So when we gather at the table and we receive the Lord's Supper together today and every month following, think of it as an opportunity to pray, come Lord Jesus, we want to sit at your table. We want to feast with you. Praying, come Lord Jesus, and we should be praying it all the time, is a reminder that while we live in liminal in between times, confusing times, we longingly await the return of a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is coming to make all things new. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen. So we're